week with the ministers of the roundtable, we introduced a study that would begin in the book of Ecclesiastes, and that's where we're going to be spending the next several weeks. Now, you look up here, and obviously this panel is a little different tonight. We are honored and blessed that in the absence of Ben Hogan and Mingu Chang, that Brother Gene Clower and Stan Quinn agreed to join us in this format. And I believe that the wisdom just got greater up here. Not because Ben and Mingu weren't intelligent, but because we gained these two fine brothers and scholars of Scripture. And so tonight they will be participating in this study with us. Again, we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Now last week when we introduced this book, we did a little bit of background on it, and we focused on Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And one of the things we uh, put forward last week is that Ecclesiastes is the reflections of an older Solomon. And in it he is examining the purpose of life. And he's declaring that everything is meaningless, everything is vanity, everything doesn't matter unless God is in the picture. And we look to the very last verses of this text to get an understanding of where he was going. And in the very last two verses, he, talks, he, he says that the, the purpose of man's life is to fear God and keep his commandments. And that theme is going to resonate throughout the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Tonight we turn to the second chapter of Ecclesiastes to look at what the, the teacher, the preacher, has to say as he proceeds through his investigation of purpose. And we're going to begin by reading the first 11 or so verses, if I can get there. should have done this before we began. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and we're going to start by reading verses 1 through 11, and then we'll start our examination of the text this evening. <clears throat> I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. In this section, I kind of summarize it as, as uh, Solomon's investigation into pleasure. He was looking, in fact, your, uh, your translation might have a, su a subheading here. 
that may say something along the lines of the vanity of self-indulgence or the vanity of pleasure or something along those lines. And it seems that Solomon is investigating pleasure as to whether or not it can provide meaning to life. And with that, you'll notice in verse 3 that he, he kind of provides a reference to his overall thesis of this book. In verse 3, he's in, he indicated that his objective was to see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I find it fascinating when you read that simple verse. He's investigating what is the ultimate objective of life for the individual. And he's not just looking at it for himself. He's looking at it for everyone. If you look at that language, it's universal in its application. He's saying that the children of man, that includes every person. He, he uses the phrase under heaven, that includes every person. He is saying that I'm trying to find out for your benefit, not just for mine. I'm looking into whether or not we can find satisfaction in this life through the pursuit of pleasure. We can find purpose in this life through the pursuit of pleasure. And his investigation comes up empty, just like all others. Before I go any further, though, I'll uh, throw it over to Jay. Jay, what were your initial thoughts as you looked at this first section? Well, as I read verses 1 through 11, one of the things I see is that he was very thorough with his investigation. He, he truly tried to figure out everywhere a pleasure could be seen, a pleasure could be felt. He not only examined it, but he examined it in full. And he went to the full degree of seeing, okay, if man finds pleasure in this success... And let me go to the utmost highest pinnacle of that success, and I will find joy there. I'll find meaning there. And so he, as he's going around this kind of um, spectrum of different joys and pleasures or uh, of possessions or successes or uh, investments or attainments, he still finds no purpose at all. And the one verse I'd like to point out before we kind of keep moving through this, um, verse 9. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. And what I see and what I gather from this is he went further in investigating this more than any man could ever do again. If there is purpose found in possessions, he would have found it. If there was purpose or meaning behind the pleasures of man, the success of, success of works, or whatever it may be, if, if there was purpose to be found, he would have found it. And he still ends the section, verse 11, Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was meaningless in striving after the wind. And so what I gather from this is, as he's done a very good job of investigating this, he found nothing. And so how that applies to me, I think, now today in my life is I think we're all in the, the boat of saying, if I only had it this way, if I only had it a little bit better, if my grass was a little bit greener, if, my, if this looked a little bit more like that, if, my, if I examined, if I looked a little more my, like my neighbors in this way, or if I could be as successful as this person at my job, whatever it may be, there's always a pinnacle. And it, you know, we've always seen the illustrations of you know, the grass is always green on the other side. But we always have this one person or one thing or this one goal. If we could only just make this, if I could only just reach this one goal in my life, then I would find happiness, I'd find pleasure, contentment, satisfaction, whatever it may be. 
And we all know that once we get there, there's always the next mountain to climb, there's always the next goal to make, the next objective to meet. But I think this even shatters that mindset to say, not only is that type of life just only leading you to pursuing more and more and more, but that pursuit is only going to lead you to this. No matter what higher goals you make, no matter how you know, greener your grass grows, no matter what it is, someone has already reached the end of that rope. And at the end of it, he found nothing. So I think that's what I take away from it, is that he did a pretty good job. And no matter, no matter how much I explore it, this is the result I would come to as well. It seems to me when, when I read this, I begin wondering, where's his wisdom? He's searching everything out that we all experience from time to time. And, and it, it, honestly, as I read this, I think of today's lifestyle. You know, we, we have a, a lifestyle that could be reduced to probably six-syllable words, single-syllable words, and it, if it feels good, do it, you know. Seems kind of like where, the way our world is, is working today. And uh, Solomon is trying to find, is there something to that? Is there something that, that I'm missing at this particular point? Uh, you know, he, he's talking about an indulgence into pleasure here. And I wonder about his wisdom at this point. Is that really the, the, the purpose of his wisdom? Is he really trying to find out what's good for man to do under heaven all the days of their lives? If so, he should tell us, as he does later on in the, in the chapter, that it's to serve God, that it's to seek God. It's uh, quite an interesting thing. Uh, so, many, so many things that we see today that uh, I read the story earlier of a, a young lady who several years ago had was very intelligent. As a matter of fact, was known publicly as the smartest person on the earth. And she had successfully taken a variety of college exams and entrance exams and never missed a question. But one of the reporters one day said, what's the purpose of life? She said, I haven't a clue. Solomon found that out too. What's the purpose of all these things? It's not there. It's somewhere else. Serving God. Amen. So uh, just to build on what, what you've said, um, you know, I, I think Jesus clearly for us as, as Christians is the ultimate model. And I think about his life experience, he, he entered in the most humble of fashions and exited in the, the most cruel um, and, and unjust um, ways. And, um, and, and the Hebrew writer tells us that he can uniquely identify with us. He has compassion for us because he understands the weaknesses that we're presented with. And as you've said, Solomon, on the other hand, is an example of excess, of, excess. of everything beyond our abilities. We, we can't fully you know, reach either the wisdom or the wealth. And when I think about that, and I think about the chronicling of all the things that he did, all the pursuits to test and try to find that happiness, you know, wisdom was granted to him by God 
in his request, but that wasn't the only thing God gave him. God was so pleased with Solomon's request for wisdom that he also gave him wealth. God gave him blessings. He talks about, I built these things for myself. Well, what was one of the things that, that he built? The first, one of the first things that he built, he built a house for God. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, we see God accepting that, that offer, that, that offering, that construction project. But God admonishes Solomon at that time, if you don't follow me, I am going to, to take all these things away from you. And the life and the result, the, the kingdom, the, 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 the immediate generation after Solomon and the entire history of God's people are affected by these pursuits. The relationships that he sought happiness and joy in. Um, and, and the pride that was obviously built up in him. Good things that God gave him that he misappropriated and to a degree that none of us can fully identify with. We all in this room have limits. Mm -hmm. Solomon, unlike most, had, <laughs> he had limits, but his limits were far different than ours. And if we're not careful, we might focus and define ourselves by our limits, whereas we're in, admonished to be content. We, we should count our blessings. We should count our blessings. So uh, again, what an example, of, an opportunity for us to learn vicariously through him and his, his experience and hopefully be more pleasing to God with the blessings that he's given to us. You know, one thing that stood out to me in this section that kind of alludes to different things you've talked about is how much Solomon spoke about himself. If you look at just verses, uh, what is it, verses 4 through 8, mm -hmm. he will mention himself either with the pronoun I or me or my, my or myself he will say it 13 different times in the span of four or five verses. It was all about Solomon. It was very vain in that regard. In fact, one thing I find very fascinating is that throughout the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes, God, the term for God, the, the word God, only appears twice. Once in chapter 1 and verse 13, where it's almost accusational towards God. And again here at the end of chapter 2 and verse 24, when the shift of perception happens. And so right here we have an insight into Solomon that I think Brother Gene was really hitting upon. It's all about him and living for himself, not for God. And that's the ultimate problem. In his pursuit of wisdom... He wasn't wise in the sense that he wasn't focused on God. The other thing that stands out to me is that twice in this chapter, in this section we just read, Solomon thought it was necessary to let us know that he remained, uh, his wisdom remained with him. Mm -hmm. You can see it at verse 3. You can see it also um, at verse 9. I think Solomon knew that the life he was living and the pursuit that he was following was going to um, be interpreted by many as um, not only hedonistic, but almost addictive. Like he was addicted to uh, obtaining wealth or addicted to these pleasures, and he wanted people to at least perceive that he hadn't gone crazy or to understand that, that he knew what he was doing the whole time, that he was intentionally involved in these pursuits because he wanted to find out if there was any gain or reward from pursuing them. But twice Solomon thought, hey, I need to tell you 
that I'm not insane. And anytime somebody feels the need to tell you that, doesn't it make you think that they might just be a little bit insane in the moment? So Solomon, Solomon is so focused on self in all these pursuits, and he knows that what he's doing does not appear wise. So he feels the need to explain himself. I think those are two important things to notice in this particular section as well. Any other thoughts on yeah. this first section? Go ahead. Yeah, I'll just quickly comment on the fact that I liked how both of, both of you made the comment that all of this just comes from a misuse of a gift God has given him. Yeah. Solomon would not have been able to explore these gifts if one, his father had not been David, he had not been born into the family he was born into, that he had not been blessed with this wealth, if God had not given him this wisdom. This is all that, everything that allows him to explore this is something that's just been given to him. I mean, even his first, you know, big home run hit as a king, the building of the temple, who made the plans, who gathered the materials. I mean, he, he was plugged in, and, you know, this is, now this is his construction project. But, and then, it, then to see with all of this given to him, this is how he uses it. It's a, it's a gross misuse of funds. It's a gross misuse of wisdom. And so I, I think that's a good point of kind of where all of this is even made possible in the first place. God gave him this wisdom and his wealth, and then this is how he used it. So this is a, a big image of foolishness. And, and I've heard the book of Ecclesiastes almost as a whole is almost like Solomon, a sermon of repentance, looking backwards saying, I was given wisdom, this is how I used it, this was the results, you know, type, type imagery there. I really think there are about three things that we need to draw from this. Uh, not everything is focusing on him, but really what he did. Number one is the fact that sensual promises, sensual pleasures, simply do not have the staying power that he was looking for. And every one of us have felt that way in, in, in times past, I, I think. And I think that we would say, that would say to us that Solomon may have tried these things, but he didn't allow them to control himself. And then secondly, sensual pleasures offer uh, often open your eyes, but in reality they blind us. Sensual pleasures, thirdly, that he's pictured for us are, are disillusions to us, really, because we refuse to tell ourselves and others about their emptiness. We forget that if it feels good, do it. Has a flip side, which is neither attractive nor is it satisfying? So Solomon learned these things. He did it. And we look at him and say, what, what, are, what are you doing here experimenting with all these things? If we tried to experiment with all of them, we'd get hung up on some of them. He was intelligent enough that he didn't do it. Now, we can question his wisdom in some other areas. <laughs> yeah as well. well I, would, I would add one, one other thing. There's a specific reference to, to concubines. I know last week in the setup, you know, um, there was a reference to the wives and, and the role that those wives played in Solomon's life. And I think more broadly, that would be of general applicability to everyone here, even those who, who aren't married uh, or pursuing marriage. Um, I think, you know, simply our relationships are important. And we can, we can engage and invest in relationships that will pull us closer to God, or we can invest and be pulled away from God 
in relationships. Every relationship in, in, in this plane, we should weigh out in that simple fashion. Is this, is this relationship drawing me closer to God or not? And if not, the consequences may be, will be very dire. Yeah, great point. Great point. Let's turn our attention to the next section of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 12 through 17. And while Solomon in the first 11 verses seems to be focused on pleasure, here in verses 12 through 17, he seems to turn his attention to wisdom once again. He had already done that in chapter 1, but he kind of focuses on wisdom again. So beginning in verse 12 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and reading through verse 17. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also, why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Not a very optimistic-sounding section there, but Solomon does investigate wisdom as well. Brother Gene, what did you notice as you uh, prepared this section? What stood out to you? Well, there are two or three things that, I, that really caught my attention as I read through this and studied through it. The wise man's eyes are in his head. Yeah, well, sure. Isn't that what we consider? What really, really he's talking about that it does not perceive with other things. It doesn't, see, it doesn't perceive the, the, the ultimate cost of that particular thing. I think there's, there's several things that we need to think about here. Number one, uh, the wise prepare their minds so their eyes can see. And I think he's demonstrated that in the first part here. Now, it's, it's very easy for us to take in the first 11 verses and say, well, he shouldn't be doing those things. I mentioned that a moment ago. You and I would have trouble with that. But he had prepared his mind so his eyes could see. Proverbs is, is wisdom. It's wisdom personified. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 through 33, it's a, a, a woman crying out in the streets looking for someone to listen to her. Solomon said that he set his mind to know wisdom, verse 17. Wisdom comes from study, it comes from learning, it comes from observing, it comes from experiencing. Yes, God gave him wisdom. But still, as an individual, we have to choose that wisdom. God has given us grace. God's given us a lot of gifts. We cannot even begin to imagine. We have to accept them from God. And then secondly, the wise use their eyes to prepare for the coming events and challenges. Now he's, he's very clear about it. He noted that since wisdom can't keep one from death, 
chapter 2 and verse 16, the wise must live in a way that recognizes their inevitable end. We get away from that today. We need to understand the fact that this life is not forever. Equally, the wise man knows the proper time and procedure, according to chapter 8 and verse 5 of Ecclesiastes. He's aware of the pitfalls, and not knowing the world around him. Wisdom enables us to see the dishonesty and deceit, not the end, not in the end, but that benefit the deceiver. The person who exercises wisdom can see that riches will not guarantee anything. That's guarantee the happiness of, of peace. Desires a lot of things, but it doesn't really help us in any kind of thing like that. I think we need to understand that. Thing, the things that are real, the things that are, are really uh, working on us. You know, we, we have an opportunity to see what, what uh, the Scripture tells us. And he, I think he tells us again, the wise use their eyes to choose the right path. I think, and I think he's illustrating here, that the most difficult thing we have to do in life is to make the proper choice. You and I are making choices every day about numbers of things. Is it the right one? Are we making that? That's what he's talking about. And then he talked about choosing your eyes to, make, to choose the right path. Again, a choice is made. But use your eyes to examine that path and make sure it's the right path. You see, he saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. We can, we can understand that, can't we? And they use their eyes to see that they'll never know everything. I think he is doing that. In all the things that he experimented with, he struggled with trying to find out what the ultimate result would be. But the wise will use their eyes for that. And he realizes that truth back over again in chapter 8 when we get there. When a person thinks that he no longer needs God's counsel or direction or wisdom, he's a fool, according to Jeremiah chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. So I think, I think there's some things here that we need to see that he's learning and what the wise people do. It's my thoughts of this. Thank you, Brother Gene. Anybody else? I think verse 17 is a, a, a summit verse when it comes to, it, it, it's starting to wrap up some thoughts he's already had moving up to this, and he, then he's going to kind of go back into it after this. But verse 17, so I hated life. The work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after the wind. If we remember back to last week, chapter 1 is about um, the different ways he had started to seek uh, meaning and purpose in life, especially when he was seeking out wisdom. And then chapter 2, we see this futility of, of, of pleasure and possessions. And where has all, each one, he stopped and said, and this was vanity, and this was, I explored this, and it meant nothing. I explored this, and it meant nothing. And so that's one thing to come to that conclusion, to go and, and experiment and explore, and then to say, well, I didn't find any purpose there. But I think this is maybe one of the more, uh, the most important, one of the most important things I found in chapter 2 is this result of that feeling. All of this has led him to this. So I hated life. This is what all this exploration, this is what all this um, exam examining has led him to. He's, he's come to the point where we're going to find later he can't even sleep at night. He's come to the point where he hates 
life because in every way he's tried to find pleasure, tried to find joy, tried to find purpose. It's not there. Now think about John chapter 16 and verse 33. These things, when Christ says, These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. I see chapter 2 verse 17 as Solomon just saying, I went down this path and not only did I find no purpose, but it led me to almost a state of depression that I hated life and all that it had to give me. And I think about us sometimes, I think about myself sometimes, and the roads that I go down, and the possessions or the pleasures or of the wisdom I try to, I try to go after, and, the, and these things I pursue after. And Solomon has pursued them way more than I could, and not only has he found no purpose at the end of that road, but even just the pursuit itself has led him to hating life. And now we're going to start seeing it in a little bit more in chapter 3 as well, at the end of chapter 2. When you, when you take this out of the context of all this being under the sun and you seek the wisdom of God and you seek the pleasures of God and you, and you seek the possessions of what God gives us, that's when this heading of life can be shut away and that's when meaning and purpose can be found. But I, I thought verse 17 was extremely important as this is, this is the result of everything he's been going for um, up to this point. I agree with that. And I think um, to, to build on it and tie back to the... the the series of sermons that you're preaching right now on Sunday mornings, Kyle, you know, when you take God and you take eternity off the table, if this life is all there is, then Solomon is reaching a proper conclusion. Because there's no difference in how we end up, whether we live a wise or foolish life. So, sorry about that, a couple of, uh, it's not just you. <laughs> we don't know that that was you. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, a couple of other verses that come to my mind. I think about um, you know, the, the great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. We of all men are to be most pitied if there is no resurrection. If we live a disciplined life here, and yet there is no resurrection, there's no hope for the future, then we should be most pitied. Uh, some other verses that tie in with vision, I, that, 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 that uh, um, word picture there with the, the, the wise man having eyes in his head. Um, you know, the eyes, according to Jesus, Matthew 6, 22, provide light to the body. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's through our eyes that we're able to see and perceive. The fool has eyes in his head. He's just not using them. He who has ears, let him hear. There's a difference in, in perceiving and seeing. There's a difference in hearing and listening, and the wise, the wise man has done that. There's a difference between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. It is not within man to direct his own steps, the prophet Jeremiah tells us. Um, God's word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so when we introduce God and eternity, then this conclusion that that Psalm has reached is faulty, and he's going to build, you know, as, as we conclude the chapter. So those things jumped out at me. Yes. I'm going to speed us along just due to time constraints here. Let's, let's go ahead and move on to verses 18 through 26 and look at uh, what is said in this last great section of chapter 2. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? He will be master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This 
also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. But Stan, what did you notice as you uh, explored this section? So th- this section is, um, is, is uh, a, a challenging section. I'm, I'm really... Um, I really believe it's, 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 it's important because it contextualizes all of the, the information that he's already presented to us. Um, you know, he, he returns back to this notion of work, and I think work is something that we can, we can all identify with. In fact, I think um, many of us struggle today from an identity perspective in that we, we focus and, and we find identity in the things we do as opposed to who we are and whose we are. And, and that becomes a real problem in the various stages of life when we don't do what we always have done. When I start doing new things, I've, I may lose my identity. I may no longer be able to do the things that I found my identity in before. But, but I, I find it very interesting. So as, as we look at verses 18 through 22 and, and this contemplation about the fact that others are going to benefit from what, what labor and toil, you know, I think about God's economy. And I think about Romans 5. God gave first, and he expects us to give. When we, when we work, it's, to, it's not only to our benefit, but it's to the benefit of those that are around us. And, and so um, God's economy is, is, is such that, that we should give because he gave. We should be willing and happy to share and, and bless others in giving and yet here, Solomon you know, is, is, is contemplating this from the worldly perspective, and that um, all too often, if, we, if, if our focus is, is amassing wealth in this realm, then we're going to be dis- disappointed. There, there's also the notion of a paradox here to me. You know, I think about our Declaration of Independence in this country and the pursuit of happiness. If we pursue happiness, in my limited life experience, I don't think we find it. I think happiness is a byproduct of a life well lived with meaning and purpose. And, and likewise, we see the reference to work being a good thing. God actually created us for the purpose of good work. If a man won't work, don't let him eat. Work is a good thing. But work for work's sake is a void. It's a vacuum. Doing God's work and doing work for the blessing and benefit of others. I think about Paul's uh, message to the church in Colossae. We should work as unto the Lord. Everything we do should be for his glory and his purposes. And when that happens, meaning and purpose are found. And others are blessed, and God blesses us in ways that we could never imagine. 
Amen. You know, it's interesting there in verse 24 how there is this transition happening in, in this chapter where all of a sudden Solomon says there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Didn't earlier he say he pursued every pleasure, even, even uh, drinking wine, and that all of it was vanity? This almost sounds like it's a contradiction to something he already said, and it definitely sounds like a contradiction to Jesus' parable of, the, uh, of the, the rich fool in Luke chapter 16. A guy who built bigger barns than to said, hey, let's eat, drink, and be merry, and his life was gone the next moment, and Jesus referred to him as a fool. But I think the difference here is that when you get to verse 24 and following, God is in the picture. Because if you look at the end of verse 24, as Brother Stan has already alluded to, this is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? In other words, I think there's the transition happening here is that Solomon is realizing, yeah, all this stuff, whether it be work, whether it be wisdom, whether it be the pursuit of pleasure, all of that is meaningless and vain if God's not in the picture. From this point forward, God will get mentioned 40 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Twice in the first two chapters, in the last 10 chapters, he's referenced 40 times. Because I believe Solomon finally realizes that the purpose of life is to have God in the picture. And so, you referenced Colossians chapter 3 and verse 23. I also thought of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Even the most monotonous things of eating and drinking ought to have God in the picture somewhere. That's where true meaning comes from. And I think that's the point Solomon has set us up with this very pessimistic view of life and, and told us how he pursued all these things in chapter 2 and even back in chapter 1 and how they were all meaningless. But once God was in the picture, they had their meaning finally. You know, it seems to me, I, I guess being a preacher, <laughs> I, think, I looked at this passage, the whole chapter, and I thought, Solomon constructed that just like we construct sermons. <laughs> really, he's talking about people's sin, the first part of it, how they sin. Get them aware of this particular thing. And as he proceeds to the end of it, in verses 24 through 26, it, it, it's God's benefit. Here's the way you can deal with that. And uh, it seemed like a... He, he's identified in the chapter one, the first part of it, as a preacher. I believe he's preparing his sermon here in, yeah. this, in this particular way. And he does it, does it well. Yeah, he does. Inter interestingly to me, too, on, he's spending a lot of time there about what's going to happen to what we have after we die. It's interesting to me that we all are going to leave something behind. We don't know when we're going to die. And so a lot of times we're not prepared for it. I read of a man who built a, an outstanding mansion in, in Colorado. 
uh, Colorado Springs for his wife as a special treatment to her. And after just a, a few days, she sighed and says, who needs this? What, she, what was she going to do with 35 rooms? You know? Or you, you think of John D. Rockefeller near the end of his life. He had an income of approximately a million dollars a week. But at breakfast, he had a drop of coffee, a spoonful of cereal, a forkful of egg, a bit of chop the size of a pea, richest man in the world. And he didn't have the ability to even enjoy, enjoy his food. That's Solomon's talking about that, isn't he? We have to learn where we are and what we, what we need to be looking forward. And verses 24 through 26 points out that it's God. He hadn't mentioned him, as you said, but once before this in chapter 1. But now he's going to mention him a lot. And he's, he's drawing that sermon to that conclusion where he really points them to what they must do with life. Point it to God. I think that's absolutely correct. And, and pulling from something from, that, Kyle, you said last week, I think in verse 24, this is that transition where he's now starting to pull up God that much more. And this is, he's been talking about everything he's been doing under the sun. And now I think, Kyle, like you said, like I was mentioning, he's starting to look for purpose for what, from what comes above the sun. Yeah. And so up until this point is all that quantity, is all that quality. I've had the best of this. I've had the most of this. But up to this point, he then transitions to seeing his possessions, his pleasures, his wisdom, everything, not by quantity or quality, but by who, who gave it to him and who is it for. And I think that's where the, the secret or the, the, the true success of verse 24 comes in here is that he's able to find, for the first time in all of this, he's actually able to be satisfied because he recognizes where that satisfaction comes from. The Lord has given it to me and I can turn this back into God. Another, another thing interesting to me, after all of this talk about what he's going to leave behind, he ended up leaving it to Rehoboam. And in one year, it was all gone. That's something I was going to touch on. And it's funny you say that because I, th I think about that's a byproduct of, I mean, how many years did this take him? How many months? How, who, got, who had to witness his father <laughs> yeah. enjoy all these pleasures? Yeah. Who had to witness his father go through all these different concubines? Who had to witness his father live this lifestyle and then have this mindset that he has in verse 18 that he was positively, he hated all of it because then the day he was going to have to give it to who? His son. It wasn't just some random successor. Yeah. It was his son. And then what happens to his son? Throws it all away in one year. The kingdom is split into two. I mean, Israel completely just starts spiraling down. And a lot of times we look at Jeroboam and Rehoboam for starting this, but I wonder if the seeds of destruction oh, and the yeah. fall of Israel started yeah. Yeah. in this pursuit yeah. of pleasure to the, fir, you know, to the utmost point. Yeah. And so it's a byproduct. It's a victim that maybe we don't always see. And right. in a father's pursuit, the son's having to then... Um, put the pieces together, and they're following his same, and they both do a terrible job, you know, maybe even worse in some degrees. But uh, that, that's a good point, absolutely. And, and it's fascinating that you're watching this unfold in the life of Solomon, who was the son of the man after God's own yeah, heart. Yeah, absolutely. You think, you think about the legacy that was left for him and then the legacy that he ends up leaving. And, and then you, remember what happened to Solomon at the, by the end of his life. 
he had turned completely away from what God had ordered. Yeah. So that brings us to the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And we've been very blessed tonight to be joined by Brother Gene Clower and Brother Stan Quinn. We thank you for, uh, for taking the time out of your week to prepare for this and to be a part of this study. We are indebted to you. Uh, with that, we're going to draw to a close, and Brother Jay Hall is going to lead us in a word of prayer. Okay, let's pray. Dear Father, we, we humbly approach your throne, Lord, with uh, full hearts of adoration and praise to you. And we thank you for tonight that we have this opportunity to come into a building and sit together with one another, Lord, and have a, a period of praise and also a time of study as we reflect into your word. And we thank you for your wisdom in giving us this uh, book that we could glean from tonight. We thank, I thank you for the men that I was able to sit up here with, Lord, and all the wisdom they were able to, to bring from your word. And we know that it all comes from you, Lord. Lord, help us to never get trapped into the pursuits of this world. Lord, help us see above the sun in everything we do. We thank you for giving us the example of Solomon because we now see, Lord, to the, to the fullest degree what these pursuits lead to and that they will never lead to anything, Lord, outside of uh, pain and disappointment. Lord, we know every small, minute blessing, every small moment in our lives, every work that our hands find, every food that blesses our table, Lord, we can find satisfaction and joy, though, just because when, just when we recognize that it, it's from you, and Lord, it's for you. And so I ask you, Lord, in our, in our pursuits of finding wisdom and joy in, in the world, Lord, that we will rather t turn our hearts and find all the simplest joys and, and satisfactions and everything we have tonight, Lord, that's given to us from you. Lord, I ask you to help us, Lord. Pr I, I pray for all those that will be traveling this week, if it be your will. I ask you to be with them, Lord, as they travel to and from families for the, the holiday on Thursday. Lord, give them safe return home. We look forward to being back together on Wednesday night and pray all this through your son's name. Amen.